Shut up! Will you shut up? Ah! Now we see the violence inherent in the system! Shut up! Oh! Come and see the violence inherent in the system! Help! Help! I'm being repressed! Bloody peasant! Oh, what a giveaway! Do you hear that? Do you hear that, eh? That's what I'm on about. Do you see him repressing me? You saw it, didn't you? There's a metaphor I like to use, and it helps me expand my worldview and look at things from multiple different angles. Everybody has their own political identity, and this can be based off a number of different things. They can be based off our experiences, they can be based off the people we know, they can be based off our education, and a myriad of other factors. And as part of our political identity, we might feel more comfortable with one party or ideology over another. But I firmly believe, just like fingerprints, everybody's political identity is a little bit different. That everybody's political identity is unique to him or herself. There are some people who remain very strongly identified with one ideology or party, and there are others, like me, who feel more comfortable weaving in between party and ideological lines. Ultimately, though, even if you strongly identify with an ideology or party, your political ideology is yours and yours alone, and it is unique. So, I definitely have my own political identity, and among the general population, I think it's fairly unique. But I don't like to stay in the same point of mind constantly. I don't want to become stagnant and complacent. I want to always be looking at the issues that confront our world through multiple lenses and from multiple angles. That's why I use this metaphor. This metaphor that I have a secret drawer, and inside my drawer are dozens of different pairs of glasses. Some of those glasses are red, some of them are rose-tinted, some of them are blue, some of them are very stylish, some of them nobody wear anymore, and some of them might belong to an alien species. But sometimes I get tired of my natural glasses-free view of the world. Sometimes I want to see that view through a different lens. So maybe I'll grab one of my glasses that's labeled neoconservative and put them on. And I can get a sense of how a neoconservative views the world and think about what issues and arguments are important to them. Or maybe I'll put on my green or environmentalist party glasses and see the issues that environmentalists are most concerned about. And comparing and contrasting these different views of the world when you're putting on multiple sets of glasses, to me, is very informative. But today, I want to take out one of my favorite pairs of glasses. And these are my socialist pair of glasses. And what's interesting about these glasses is that they're making a comeback. They used to be a very fashionable set of glasses to wear. However have fallen out of use in the past couple decades. But now, many people are picking up these glasses again, putting them on, and saying, you know what, I like this. These feel pretty comfortable. But something tells me the people putting on those glasses now wouldn't get along very well with the people who put on those glasses 100 years ago. Society changes, issues come up, People's frames of references aren't always the same. 
So I think it's important to keep in mind that there are always multiple iterations of the same type of glasses. And I've always personally felt more comfortable with the older socialist glasses than the newer ones. So I want to take my time here today to make an argument, make an argument framed under my older socialist glasses. And this is going to allow me to do one of my favorite things to do on this podcast, which is use ideas and arguments from one side of the political spectrum to support an idea from the opposite side. Meaning, I frequently enjoy using right-wing arguments to defend left-wing ideas, or vice versa. So, for example, I will make right-wing arguments as to why something like a basic guaranteed income for all is a good idea. Because you can argue that a basic guaranteed income will actually reduce the size of government by making social programs such as welfare or unemployment insurance unnecessary. As well as it would cut a huge amount of government red tape, ensuring that you will need far less government bureaucrats to do the same job. Today, however, I'm going to make a left-wing argument as to why a left-wing idea is actually a right-wing one, or at the very least benefits the right-wing far more than it does the left. So let me tell you exactly what we're going to do today. Today, I'm going to argue why forwarding notions such as white privilege, straight privilege, thin privilege, male privilege, and so on and so forth do not help the classes of people they intend to help. Quite the contrary, these notions ultimately end up in creating a more unequal society and allow the richer to get richer and the powerful to only accumulate more power. And I will be making this argument through my socialist glasses. So buckle up everybody because things might get a little messy in here as we delve into our 11th episode of Naples Ultra Wealth Privilege. And so it begins. Everybody pull up a chair. I think we need some dialoguing. Now pull up. We're going to do a little exercise to help you put things in perspective. Some of you will have to wear stars on your person at all times. Oh, I'm a policeman? Ugh, I'm getting too old for this crap. Look at me. I'm a star-bellied snitch. No, you shouldn't be happy to have a star. A star means you've been singled out, labeled, like the Jews in Nazi Germany. So, if we have stars, we're Jews? Exactly. And we should be sad to be Jews? Yes. Well, no, it's complicated. I mean, my point is, during the Holocaust, Jews weren't allowed to go to school, their property was taken away, they had to live in prisons. I don't want to be a Jew! All right, forget the stars. Get rid of the stars. We're moving on. As always here, before we get to where we need to go, we need to lay some of the groundwork. And I want to take a little bit of time to talk about the frame of reference that the first socialists were coming at the world from in comparison to what newer people who call themselves socialists might look at the world. If you look at the history of socialism as an ideology, the ball starts to get rolling 
right after the American Revolution. And that's not to say that any of the American Founding Fathers were socialist. It's more to look at what happened after the American Revolution and what happened when some of those revolutionary ideas found their way to France. And despite sharing some of these ideas at the start, after everything was said and done, France's revolution looked far different from the American one. But one of those famous iconic images from the French Revolution is the image of the French revolutionary in a coffee shop surrounded by all his other revolutionaries discussing these new and unique ideas that the revolution finally allowed them to share openly. And just after the French Revolution is when you would start to see some of these socialist ideas infiltrating the French consciousness and a few notable French intellectuals. And it's very interesting to see what these post-revolution and pre-Marx socialists thought. For example, the man who is credited for creating the term socialist, Count Henry de Saint-Simon, argued that socialism has to be a meritocracy, that socialism needed to promote science and technology, and that would ultimately eliminate the inequities in a capitalist system. The entirety of the country should be geared towards scientific and technological progress, but within the society, every person must be accordingly ranked based on their capabilities and rewarded based on how hard they worked. And it's really strange because you'll see a lot of people claim that socialism is all about making sure everybody is paid the exact same amount of money no matter what job they do. This is an absolute blatant myth. Socialism has always been about creating an equitable society, not an equal society. An equitable society is one based on fairness in which people receive back from society in proportion to what they put into societal progress. It's never been about generating equality of outcome. That yes, while socialists did strive to make society more equal, they never strived to make everybody equal. You can argue that's different with communism, and communism and socialism are two very distinct ideologies. And one of these days I'd like to do an episode where I explore the differences between the two, but even Karl Marx wrote the very famous line in regards to a communist society. It should be based on each according to his ability, each according to his need. And this is one of those fundamental misconceptions about socialism that will become important to our argument later on. But for now, I want to focus on the core societal relationship component of socialism. What made this idea so unique at the time, and what made it so destructive to the traditional structures of society at the time, was this idea that everybody in the lower classes had something in common. And that is that they were getting their teeth kicked in by those above them. That fundamentally, a poor German person and a poor French person had more in common than a rich French person and a poor French person, that the deciding relationship factor between human beings was class. And therefore, all the lower classes of society should join together and overthrow the upper ones. 
thus establishing a more fair and equitable society. And I think this notion of class is more difficult for non-Europeans to understand, even at the time, but especially now, because we have no reference as to how strict the class society in old Europe truly was. Class differentiations in old Europe were rigid and very clearly defined. It was not easy to break out of your class in this society. As well, your class would give you societal advantages as well as wealth advantages. For example, only certain classes of people could vote. So if you were a poor person, you probably had no say in how society was run at the time. And that's why a lot of these earlier socialist thinkers pushed heavily for an idea of a meritocratous society. Because rising up or down in the classes or getting into position of power had absolutely nothing to do with your own personal talents. And the idea that it should was quite a radical one. But far more radical was the idea of that socialist revolution which we alluded to earlier. And that's why socialists across Europe were seen as such a threat because they agitated for the destruction of the aristocracy and a union of all lower classes. America, while retaining some of the trappings of a European class system, was able to shed them far more rapidly. As well, American society was more open than the European monarchies of the time and had far more opportunity for an ambitious individual to rise up and become a very formidable person. And out of this more open society came this myth that America itself was classless. I remember during the 2012 Republican presidential campaign, they kept pushing this notion that America's a classless society, that we're not out to benefit any one class in particular, we're out there benefiting all Americans, which to me was pretty funny because fundamentally, at its core, the objective of socialists is to create a classless society. So I kind of got the feeling they were using socialist arguments without knowing it. But this idea that America is a classless society is certainly a myth. But there's no question that the American class system is different from the European one of older times, and you can argue still persists today. That is, class in European societies is based off a multitude of different factors, one large factor being who you were born to. And while there were certainly a lot of other factors determining your class in European society, such as your individual wealth, in the United States there was only one factor which determines your place in the American class system, and that is wealth. Your personal wealth divides you into one of three classes, the lower class, the middle class, and the upper class. And you could move in between these classes based upon your own personal wealth. And because of this, I think a lot of American lower class didn't see each other together in the same way as European socialists might have. So that's the first factor into my wealth privilege argument, that class is the most important part of the socialist thinking, that class determines your relationship with those around you, and in the American class system, 
what denotes the class you belong to is your personal wealth. Therefore, the most important factor in deciding who you will have the most common ground with is your wealth. Now, let me talk about the second factor here and then try and tie it all together. To describe the second factor, let's move forward in time. We are now living in a world where rights are applied universally to all human beings. In our Western society, all human beings now have the right to vote. They have the right to go to school. They have a right to drive a car. They have the right to love, work, and live how they would choose. This wasn't always the case, though. Rights used to be distributed based upon class. For example, only upper-class people could vote. Only upper-class people could go to school. And these rights were simply denied to lower-class people. Now that we live in a society where your rights aren't contingent on your class, that may give the impression that this class division doesn't exist anymore. That now upper-class people and lower-class people will be able to relate to one another because they all have the same rights together. And that's probably why in our modern society, class is not seen as a strong uniting force between people as it once was. But through my socialist glasses, I can see that quite frankly, this is bogus. Because while class no longer dictates to you the rights you have, it does dictate what options you have as well as how much utility you can maximize out of the rights you do have. So while a lower class person and a upper class person now have the exact same rights to go to school and get an education, the quality between those educations is going to be vastly different, as well as the idea of getting a college education for lower class people is a goal that is, in many cases, insurmountable. As well, the experiences between the lower class and the upper class are only growing more disparate. While the person in the lower class might struggle to get by taking multiple jobs to support their family, the person in the upper class has options open to them to travel, explore, take vacations, and soak up what the world has to offer. And these options open to the upper class make their life experience so different from those in the lower class that they would be unrecognizable to one another. So while class may no longer dictate the rights you do or don't have, it is still the ultimate factor in dictating your experiences in life. And ultimately, not much has changed. The poor person in France is still going to have far more in common with the poor person in Germany than the rich French person will have in common with the poor French person. And you can put in any variable you like, but that variable will never trump class in deciding whose experiences and lifestyles are more alike and who has more in common with one another. But perhaps most of all, it is the determining factor in how many as well as which doors are open for you and closed throughout your life. And that brings me straight to the core of my argument today. It seems that in the public consciousness, class is no longer seen as the determining factor in what doors are open for you and which are closed, but rather aspects more related to one's identity, such as their gender, 
their race, their sexual orientation, and so on and so forth. This rise in identity politics has been a very key defining moment for people in my generation and has led to some bitter divisions. I see those who advocate for identity politics are often conflated with the left and specifically socialists on the left. You hear the term cultural Marxist thrown around, but while wearing my old school socialist glasses, I'm here to tell you why the rise of identity politics represents a complete departure from the socialists of old to the point where they have nothing in common. As well, I'm here to argue through a socialist lens that this rise in identity politics does nothing but continue to contribute in the marginalization of oppressed peoples as well as how this rise only assists the already rich and powerful in lining their pockets further. First off, you have to state the obvious from a socialist point of view, that replacing class with identity factors as the primary mover for one's allotment in life replaces the entire core of the socialist ideology. But that's not the point here. The point is that this notion that your identity is the primary factor for your position in life is factually untrue, and we can demonstrate that. And not only can we demonstrate that philosophically, we can demonstrate that using the rigors of scientific study. First, let's do that philosophically. And to demonstrate this, I'm going to use a philosophical idea forwarded by American philosopher John Rawls with a little nay-plus modification. So the idea I'm using here is called the veil of ignorance. And Rawls's idea with the veil of ignorance is a philosophical thought experiment to help you decide the fairest way to set up society. So if you want to put yourself behind the veil of ignorance... Here's what you do. You imagine that society is a blank slate, and then you step behind this veil of ignorance. And as soon as you emerge from this veil of ignorance, you're going to have a whole new society in front of you. And you're going to be placed somewhere in that society randomly. You don't know where, or what job you're going to have, or what class you're going to belong to, or what gender you'll be, or what race you'll be. So, you're re-entering society somewhere new, somewhere different from where you are now, and that place is meant to be completely random. So, now that we have these preconditions, imagine that when you go behind the veil of ignorance, this time you can construct society in whatever manner you choose. Understanding that when you are placed back into the society of your construction, you are going to be somewhere randomly within it. You don't necessarily know where you'll be. So given that, how are you going to construct society? Well, John Rawls argues that you're going to construct society in the most fair and equitable way. And I think that's a pretty good assumption. And John Rawls used this idea to frame some of his own philosophical ideas, as well as pushed it as a yardstick, I guess you could say, to help us measure our own progress in society. But now let's take this idea and use it for our purposes today. So for my thought experiment, I want people to imagine that they're going to be taken out of society and re-put back into society as 
something different from what you are now. The difference here is that when you get put back into society, it's going to be the exact same society as we live in currently. What you do have the power to do is choose where you will be placed into that society along with other factors such as your race, gender, ethnicity, etc. So in this thought experiment, you have the power to change any aspect about who you are physically as well as your place in society. My imagination is that when you return from beyond this new veil of ignorance back into society, the overwhelming majority of people will have chosen not to change their identities, meaning they would not change their gender, their race, their sexual orientation, and so on and so forth. What they would change coming back into society is their class within that society. They would probably give themselves more money or more power, or definitely replace yourselves in the upper classes, especially if you had a blank check to do so. My point here being that when given the blanket opportunity to change any aspect of themselves, the overwhelming majority of people would not change the identity aspects of themselves. What they would change, though, is their class aspects. And I think that does wonders in revealing as to what is the true determinative factor as to how many doors and choices you will have available in your lifetime. If you still don't believe me, then ask yourself, what would you rather come back as? Would you rather come back as a poor white person or a rich black person? Let's even move them one class up. Would you rather come back as a middle class white person or a rich black person? Would you rather come back as a poor man or a rich woman? And so on and so forth. But if you ask me, what would you rather come back as? A rich white man or a rich black man? Or what if the choice is between a rich white man and a rich black woman? To me, that choice doesn't matter at all. I would be happy coming back as either one of them. And if you're going to force me to choose, I'd probably just flip a coin. And this all feeds back to the central point, and that is class is the ultimate determining factor as to your position and options available to you within society. Or, to frame this another way, a way in which many people frame debates about these issues, and that is wealth is the ultimate determining factor of your privilege within society. We can look at more evidence to this trend. For example, I remember when I was going through university, uh, I learned about a study. It was my first psychology class ever. And we discussed a study which measured factors in determining which people would get along with other people and how much one another would have in common. And the number one factor in determining this common ground was wealth. It was found that rich white people and rich black people had far more in common and got along far better with one another than poor black people and rich black people or poor white people and rich white people. But most of all, poor white people and poor black people had far more in common than people from the same race but in different classes. The researchers hypothesized this was because People in the same classes shared similar experiences to one another versus people in other classes. It was easier to relate to the people who had endured the same hardship of poverty 
than it was to relate to people of the same ethnicity or culture. And this just again goes back into the idea of how class trumps identity every time. But now let's move into the final phase of the argument. And that is this idea that identity is the primary determination of your privilege within society is not just wrong, but only helps the powerful and continues to marginalize the oppressed. We know identity is not the major factor in determining privilege because your identity doesn't have bearing on social rights. Now, everybody has the right to vote. They have the right to go to school. They have the right to learn about the topics which interest them. They have the right to start their own business. They have the rights of mobility within their country. They have the rights to peacefully assemble. They have the rights to freedom of speech. These rights are overwhelmingly applied equally to all members of society. And when they are not, it is an absolute tragedy and mockery of the principles for which our Western pluralized democracies stand for. But there are rights and privileges that are denied to you based on class. And there are doors that are closed to you based on class. The number one example here is that, especially in the United States and to a lesser degree in Canada, that in order to run for public office, you need a tremendous amount of wealth. So unless you can find someone to sponsor your campaign or you're independently wealthy, that even though despite the fact that on paper you have the right to run for political office, in practicality, it is an impossibility. School, especially secondary education, is another right which is becoming more and more denied to people based upon class. That despite the fact that you do have the right to a secondary education, based upon your class, it might be an impossibility for you. But the most egregious examples of wealth privilege are on display in the justice system, where in the justice systems of many countries, including Canada, including the United States, it is theoretically possible to effectively buy your way out of a conviction. Don't believe me, there is of course a few famous examples of this, but let's just look at two briefly. The best example I think of this is Caitlyn Jenner, who literally ran over and killed somebody with her car, miraculously escapes manslaughter charges. And I happen to be of the opinion that if you kill somebody and avoid criminal charges, that shows a pretty high degree of privilege to me. So the notion that Caitlyn Jenner somehow has diminished privilege status within society is quite frankly absurd. Because I guarantee you that if it were a white middle class man, they would be facing at the minimum manslaughter charges. But one of my favorite examples of wealth privilege is the affluenza teen. And this is a story that happened Geez, I can't remember how long ago it was. It was a couple of years ago. But essentially what happened is that this teenager had either stolen his rich parents' car or it was a birthday present for him. Regardless, though, what happened is that this teenager of rich parents took this expensive car, got drunk, drove it, killed some people, and ultimately did not face any criminal charges because the judge deemed he had what was called affluenza 
And basically, affluenza was described as this notion that he doesn't know any better. He's lived such a privileged, isolated life that he is not responsible for his actions. I think he's in jail now for doing something different. But regardless, at the time, it was held up as this example as to how there was a two-tiered justice system. One for the rich in society and one for everyone else. And what can be a bigger example of privilege in society than being able to get away with criminal actions because of which class you belong to and how much money you have? So, there is no instance of a time when identity conferred more privilege onto a person than class. But I'll hear people come up and say, well, wealth and identity do tend to correlate considerably. For example, black people on average are poorer than white people. And this is absolutely true. However, on average, a white person is going to be poorer than an Asian person within westernized society. So it's not like the deck of cards is stacked. Quite the contrary. Wealth happens to know no skin color, and no gender. When it comes to power, privilege, and prestige in society, wealth speaks all on its own. After all, there are plenty of wealthy people in China who happen to be Asian, or India who happen to be Indian, or Mexican who happen to be Mexican. After all, for a little while, the richest man in the world was Mexican. However, Bill Gates has since reclaimed that title. But any of these wealthy people from China, India, or Mexico has considerable more privilege than a middle-class white person. Not just on their own country, but if they were to move from their home country to a westernized society, they would instantaneously have more power and privilege than a middle-class white person due to their extensive wealth. And continuing to advance identity politics only helps their wealth and power grow. And this is for two reasons. First, it allows people who are already extremely powerful people to come in and say, because of my identity, I'm actually the one who's oppressed, not you, middle class white citizen. And this allows the powerful to kick down while simultaneously arguing that they're bringing people up. And I don't think there is anything more oppressive to the people in the bottom tiers of society than allowing the most powerful to claim that they are victims and thus continue to justify that power gap. But the main reason as to why this movement of identity politics only hurts those who are oppressed and lines the pockets of those who are powerful is because it divides us. And it doesn't just divide us a little bit. It divides us bitterly. Because what happens when you get a middle-class woman and a middle-class man to fight amongst each other as to who has more power in society? They are not only ignoring the real source of privilege in our society, but they are making it easier for those above us to exploit us. Look, it's obvious that there are many circumstances in our society in which people of different races can and will be treated differently. And if your label for those instances is an instance of white privilege, 
That's your prerogative. You can label it that way if you so choose. And there's no way that I could categorically disprove this notion that the color of your skin confers you a certain amount of privilege in society. But what I can say is that the amount of privilege it does confer you is so microscopic in comparison to the amount of privilege and power bestowed on a wealthy person in comparison to a middle class person or especially a lower class person that it amounts to a drop within an ocean. Essentially that what we're doing here while arguing between middle and lower class people as to who has more rights, white people or black people, men or women, gay people or straight people, is arguing over the table scraps of power, while during this skirmish amongst ourselves, we leave the main course to be gobbled up by the upper classes, and nothing could delight them more. Because nothing scares the powerful and wealthy interests in our society like the middle and lower classes putting aside their differences and uniting together to create a more equitable society for us all but so long as we are divided fighting over the table scraps of power we will never eat the main course until we can band together and put aside the differences that divide us we will continually struggle to move forward in the 21st century divided we will be conquered united we are invincible Welcome everybody to the second segment of Naples Ultra. And I was just going back to listen to some of the first part of the episode. And I realized there was some things I wanted to clarify. When I was listening to the episode, I realized I was coming off maybe a little bit angrier than I actually was. And that's maybe because I was trying to record the episode from the viewpoint of an old school socialist, a 19th century socialist. Not exactly a bunch of guys known for playing patty cakes. So I guess it was natural that it would come off angry. What I do want to say though, is that I recorded that episode from a certain perspective, a perspective that necessarily isn't my own. Like I said, I was putting on a pair of glasses for the episode and looking at the world through those glasses specifically so my core political identity definitely does not declare itself as a radical 19th century socialist what i will say though is that i do stand by the core of the argument and that is i firmly believe that identity politics unnecessarily divides us and that the primary indicator of privilege in society is how much wealth you have and what class you belong to and ignoring that fact only hurts us and helps people who would seek to hurt us but what i really wanted to do here was take an idea that is traditionally considered a left-wing idea and attack it with the very ideas that that ideology purports to represent it's easy to conjure up right-wing attacks for identity politics but i wanted to take a stab at making a left-wing argument against it not only because there are very few people out there trying to do this but also because i was hoping to inspire maybe 
a emperor has no clothes moment to show where these founding ideological ideas of identity politics had been appropriated from, and I use that word very deliberately, and distorted. And that's one of the things I really like about Bernie Sanders, that his message is a message of economic equality, number one. And that's a message that I think unites people. He's a person who understands the bigger picture and is working towards remedying it. And speaking of Bernie Sanders, let's talk a little bit about Michigan and the last Democratic debate. If you missed it, this Wednesday I posted a NAPLUS update in which I talked about all the things that had happened since the previous podcast, catching everybody up in current events to the point we are now. And if you haven't checked that out yet, I encourage you to do so, because we go into a lot more detail than we're going to go into these issues right now. We talked about Super Tuesday, we talked about a few of the previous debates, we talked about Super Saturday, we talked about the rise of Donald Trump and how I officially came out on the record as hoping that a Trump nomination would happen because it could lead to the dissolution of the American two-party system and hopefully through a process of creative destruction will open up the American political system. I also uh, compared Donald Trump's run to an episode of The Twilight Zone because it's become clear that we're living in a time where reality is indeed stranger than fiction. Plus, we also parsed the results of the Irish election and where the political situation stands in that country. But let's talk about Michigan because I talked about it a little bit in that update, but I want to go into more detail here. I didn't really express the gravity of Bernie Sanders' primary win and how that changes the electoral race for the Democrats. So Michigan itself was the largest failure of the polls in American primary history. Polls were predicting that Hillary Clinton would win the state by a margin of 20 points. Nate Silver, a very famous American polling analyst, predicted that Hillary Clinton would win Michigan with 99% confidence. So it's nice to see a time where that 1% comes true every so often. It was a stunning upset. I remember that night I was just glued to my computer or my phone watching the results slowly come in. And when Bernie Sanders finally was declared the winner, let's just say there was some celebration in the Downing household. As well, the win in Michigan has made my wife and I move forward on registering her for the Democratic primary in California because... We learned recently that she will actually be able to mail in an absentee ballot here from Canada. And as an unaffiliated voter, apparently she has the right to vote in the primaries. So while I may not get to vote for Bernie Sanders personally, at least I can take some solace in having a vicarious say in the American election. So after we have this astounding upset in Michigan. We move into the Democratic debate that happened yesterday, and oh my god, was it a slaughterhouse for Bernie Sanders. He came out strong, energetic, and aggressive. He slammed Hillary Clinton in areas where it hurt, such as her speeches to Wall Street, her support of the Iraq War, her support of NAFTA and other free trade deals, 
and Hillary Clinton, for the first time on a debate stage, looked visibly shaken. She looked tired, she looked frustrated, and all around just wasn't her calm, poised, collected self on the debate stage. Then, finally, at the end of the debate, with his closing remarks, Bernie received a standing ovation from the debate audience. It was quite a spectacle, no question about it. And Adrian Crane commented on my update that I put out on Wednesday, and he asked if I really think that Bernie Sanders can win the Democratic nomination. And yes, I do think he can win. Will he win? That's definitely a larger question. But after Michigan, after this debate, it's clear to see that there are cracks forming in the Hillary camp. It gives people the perfect excuse to second-guess Hillary Clinton's inevitability as the Democratic nominee, as well as her electability in a general election. The question ahead of us now is, is Bernie Sanders going to be able to exploit those cracks that he's now created in the Clinton campaign and use them to bring the Clinton political machine crashing down, or will he have a misstep potentially on March 15th, allowing Hillary Clinton to regain her composure? And a lot of people are claiming that March 15th is going to be a decisive date. And on the Republican side, I definitely think it will be, especially if Donald Trump cleans up in Ohio and Florida. However, on the Democratic side, I just think it will be another point in which momentum may or may not shift, unless one of the candidates does unusually well coming in to March 15th. So I think on March 15th, we could see the effective wrapping up of the Republican primary. However, on the Democratic side, it seems like it will just be another date in what will be a long slog to the finish. But I'm not going to lie. I think that the American 2016 presidential primaries have been the most entertaining and enthralling political event I have ever seen in my lifetime. It's full of over-the-top characters, completely bizarre moments, and, of course, more twists and turns than an M. Night Shyamalan movie. Quite frankly, what's going to happen between now and the end of the year, I don't think anybody knows. But finding out is going to be an incredible journey. And with that, let's move out of current events and into listener submissions. Our first submission comes from Giuseppe who writes, with love to Spencer, I've noticed your slight bias for Bernie Sanders. Well, let me just stop right here, and I want to say one thing, and that is, I don't want to hide my opinions or who I support in any given election campaign. And if I hadn't been clear enough before, then I apologize. But I support Bernie Sanders to become the next president of the United States and I will happily go on record saying that. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with taking a definite position of support for one candidate or another in the political process. Ultimately, that's what we all have to do in our own political processes in our various countries. And as far as I'm concerned, provided you've made that decision of support based on the policies the candidate represents, and the mission they're trying to convey to the country as a whole, then that's entirely legitimate. Basically, I'm saying make an informed decision. 
when you go to vote, no matter what country you live in or what candidate you support. As well, there's nothing wrong with vocalizing your support for a certain candidate. In fact, nothing drives me more insane than seeing media outlets obviously support a certain candidate in the presidential race, yet not openly come out and say they do. I will openly tell you who I support and how I came about that conclusion, although ultimately in this circumstance it really doesn't matter, not living in the United States. Like I said, the best I can hope for is to vicariously cast a vote through my wife. Anyway, let's continue. And your obvious advocacy for socialized medicine. Take this from someone who has experienced firsthand the jump or fall from the system the U.S. had before Obamacare to the state it is in now firsthand. My father is a doctor specializing in internal medicine, and as you may or may not know, doctors have been hit particularly hard. He is one of the last solo practice doctors in New York, and probably the only one in Queens. First, and most importantly, Insurance companies will not give him his earned money after he treats patients, and sometimes they hold on to his paycheck for months. You cannot find a lawyer to go up against the insurance companies at all. His paycheck has been severely decreased. And that is the only paycheck in my family. Our house is dipped in foreclosure as of a couple weeks ago. He has resorted to alternative methods of income, like working at a nursing home, which is a minefield for lawsuits, and testing out new doodads and machines for diagnosis and treatments on his patients for a couple extra K to keep onto our house. I know this system has helped a lot of people, but at my and especially my father's expense. If Bernie Sanders socialized college education like Obama socialized medicine, things would be as bad for those in the business of college education than those in the medical system now. Bernie Sanders' single-payer healthcare system seems like it would be an improvement over now for doctors, but still much worse than before 2008. Despite this, his proposed taxes would destroy my family's quality of life. Now, that is why my family is voting for Trump. Trump is the only politician who ever said anything about how doctors were affected by Obamacare and wants to repeal it, which is great. I believe a politician should not be elected by his personality, but what he will execute. I like Senator Sanders because he is anti-establishment and totally funded by his supporters, which means he can't be bought by super PACs or corporations. A huge plus. But Trump can't be bought either. He's already rich. And he's also anti-establishment, but they differ in their policies. Sanders will kill my family and Trump will free my family. Hillary is a liar, she's corrupt, and she should be in jail. People will only vote for her because they are afraid of change. They don't do research and because she is a woman. Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz are like Hillary in that they are corrupt because they are politicians but not criminal. I want to see Trump versus Bernie 2016 and on that point I couldn't agree with you more. Beyond that though there's a lot to unpack but before I start let me say this. One thing I've learned throughout my lifetime and my education is that human beings really are a collection of experiences and our experiences in life matter a tremendous amount in dictating who we are and how we view the world. One of my favorite quotes about human nature is that we are all prisoners of our own experiences. 
And I think it's important to let people know about experiences like yours and let them inform their decision making. But I also hope you take into account experiences from other people who have had positive influences on their lives due to the application of Obamacare. We have to talk about Obamacare, though. And personally, from my perspective, if I were to quote Donald Trump, I think Obamacare's a mess. Obamacare is essentially a Republican plan borrowed from Mitt Romney and does nothing to curb the overwhelming power health insurance companies have in people's everyday lives. The American healthcare system has been a mess for quite some time, and adding another band-aid onto the already gaping wound is not going to solve any problems. It might, in fact, as you said, make things worse. Now, you have to understand, the reason I advocate for socialized medicine is because I live in a country that has socialized medicine, and Canada's healthcare system works. To quote El Presidente, though, of course there are problems. There will always be problems, but I am overall very happy with the healthcare system we have in this country, and my personal experiences with it have always been positive. And none of the Canadian doctors that I know personally have ever voiced anything in comparison to the problems that your father is facing currently. Doctors here are paid well and paid on time. We're also always looking for skilled physicians in this country, so if your father has ever considered moving to Canada, we could certainly use him. And if the Canadian government saw his credentials, they might literally beg him to immigrate here. I can also say that now my wife is covered under Canadian healthcare insurance, and she is starting to have her first experiences with the healthcare system in this country, and so far, everything is going very well. And the last thing I'll say here on personal experience is that the only negative experience I've ever had with any healthcare system has been the American healthcare system. Well, the American waiting for care and myself were stuck in a waiting room in Redding, California for 13 hours. And ultimately what it seems like here is that your father is getting screwed around by the insurance companies. In single-payer systems, that's not something you have to worry about. People come in for treatment, the doctors treat them, the doctors get paid. It's as simple as that. I also want to say that I in no way hold any disrespect or disregard towards your family for supporting Donald Trump. A lot of people will claim that the reason why Donald Trump is getting so much support is because there are so many racists in the country and all the racists are flocking to Donald Trump's banner. And while there certainly are racists supporting Donald Trump, there's no way anyone can deny that. The reason he's successful is not due to racism. It's due to the fact that Donald Trump has found a large pool of voters who have been completely disregarded and disposed of by the American political system. And those are lower class voters who do not have a high school education or just have a high school education because we used to live in a world where once you graduated out of high school you didn't need to go to college to get a well-paying job that even out of high school you could go to the auto manufacturing plant in detroit and maybe you wouldn't have a good quality job but you would be paid enough to buy a house start a family and live a decent life that's no longer the case 
And these people who used to have that opportunity or don't have that opportunity because they've been born in a time when it doesn't exist continue to feel abandoned by the political system. When you actually go and listen to Donald Trump's speeches, the number one thing he keeps bringing up is trade and saying that America is going to win on trade. I'm going to force Mexico to bring back those jobs that they shipped over the border. I'm going to force China to stop manipulating its currency and bring jobs back to America. So these uneducated people will now finally have a shot at living a decent life. And those people finally feel like someone is standing up for them and understands their plight in life. And that's why Donald Trump is doing so well. Anyone who tells you that the main reason Donald Trump is having such a successful campaign up to this point is because of the racism of American people is wrong. They don't understand politics. They don't understand people. Is it a component of Donald Trump's success? That's definitely a discussion worth having. But is it the main reason that is propelling him forward in this campaign? Absolutely not. One of the fundamental rules of politics has been and continues to be, it's the economy stupid. And it's Donald Trump's economic message that resonates with his niche of voters. And I think you would agree, Giuseppe, that that is the reason why Donald Trump is resonating with your family and partially with yourself. So great question. Thanks for sending it in. I hope my answer was satisfactory. I also wish nothing but the best for you and your family. Rich C sent me a very quick email, and unfortunately this news is a little bit outdated, but he wanted to remind me to share and talk about this. And it's refreshing because we have been talking about American politics for so long and so much here on this podcast. He just wanted to remind me that Prime Minister David Cameron has set a date for the EU referendum, which is June 23rd, 2016. And we've talked a lot about the European Union in this podcast. And I would like to continue having the debate surrounding the European Union up until the actual voting day. Ever since I've opened up the debate on the European Union, I have personally learned a lot. Many of you have sent me materials on both the pro-European Union side and the anti-European Union side, and it's helped me expand my knowledge considerably. So thank you all very much for helping me do that. I also want to say that while I do hope that you listeners learn a thing or two from me by listening to this podcast, I want you all to know that during these last 11 episodes, I have learned an awful lot from all of you, and I am extremely appreciative of that fact. I want to make another special thank you to Sam Houghton, who sent me an actual document outlining the governmental structure of the European Union, and that was particularly insightful in understanding the political machinations of the European Union. And I'm happy to make that document publicly available should Sam want it to be available and people request it. The European Union has been an issue that so far many listeners have moved my opinion on. I have moved from supporting the European Union to an official undecided. I want to keep an open mind and I hope that Britons going into this campaign do their research and keep an open mind no matter which side you're currently supporting. So thanks for the reminder, Rich. 
I can't wait to see how this debate unfolds in the coming months. A last question comes from Sergio Rivera, and he writes, Hello Spencer, it's me again, Sergio Rivera, and I have a question concerning Livy, the Roman historian. He said something when Tarquin was exiled from Rome as the last king and replaced with the Republic. He said that Brutus, the guy leading the overthrow, chose the perfect time to form the Republic and that the monarchy was necessary for the Romans and other civilizations to realize how important their freedoms are to them and based on mistreatment from the monarchy, they can make a successful Republic. If any civilization, including the Romans, had tried to start the Republic first, they would have failed. So my question is, do you think it is time for the U.S. to have another monarchy and dictator in order for us to realize how important our freedoms are and could being subjected to a monarchy or dictatorship be the tool we need to advance a new era of an even greater America after we create another republic? Thank you and good luck. This is an absolutely fascinating question, and thanks so much for sending it in, Sergio. Two things here. Interestingly enough, this reminds me of a very similar quote from Socrates. In it, Socrates talks about how a democratic system or a republican system isn't necessarily the best to foster the most intelligent and knowledgeable philosophers. Due to the overwhelming freedom offered in a democratic society, we won't actually find the path or choose the path to becoming a great philosopher. And if we do find that path with the choices in a democratic life, we will be continually distracted from walking it. Anyway, let me read you the quote now. Socrates said, The democratic individual goes along day by day, gratifying the desire that occurs to him. At one point, drinking and listening to the flute. At another, downing water and dieting. Now practicing gymnastics. We would say, in our modern times, working out. And again, idling and neglecting everything and sometimes spending his time as though he were occupied with philosophy. Often, he engages in politics, and, jumping up, says and does whatever chances to come to him. And, if he admires any soldiers, he chooses to turn in that direction, and if moneymakers, in that one. And, there's neither order nor necessity in his life. But calling this life sweet, free, and blessed, he follows it throughout. I think this quote is relevant here because basically he's saying that when given so many choices in life, we're going to do whatever we want at that moment. And when I first read this quote, I thought it was so funny because it really describes a lot of us in our modern day lives. At one moment, we're playing video games. The next, we're out working out, going for a walk going to eat whenever we feel like. And then sometimes, if you're like me, you occasionally pretend you're engaged in philosophy, doing or saying whatever comes to your mind. And I think this is relevant because it shows just how dangerous it is if we let our idleness and neglect get the better of us. As well, you can't appreciate this freedom without having it denied first. So I think Livy is absolutely right. I think in order for such a change and revolution to happen, there needs to be a particularly domineering or aggressive system denying people those freedoms. You always want 
what you can't have, and, vice versa, you don't know what you got until it's gone. I do think there are a lot of people in this society that do not have gratitude for the freedoms in which we enjoy, and how much more expansive those freedoms are than at any point in human history. So we can't let what Socrates says happen to us. We can't let this idleness and neglect overwhelm us and lose how far we've come. And to answer your second question, no, I don't think we need a whole new period of dictatorship and revolution in order to appreciate these freedoms again. All we have to do is study history. This is why history is so important. And this is why we talk about history so much on this podcast. Because you have to know where you came from to see how far you've come. You have to understand the hardships of the people that came before you before you can appreciate what you have. And the only way to understand that hardship is to study history. So if we keep in mind the historical lessons that the past teaches us, then we can avoid the damages of the future or having to endure repeating history all over again just to learn the same lessons we should have already learned. Thanks for the great question, Sergio. I certainly hope that was a satisfactory answer. And with that, we are at the end of our 11th episode of Naples Ultra. But before we go, I have two very quick announcements. My first announcement is that Naples Ultra was officially featured on iTunes store page under the new and noteworthy section. So that was a pretty big moment, and I definitely didn't expect us to reach that point so soon. So thank you all for making something like that happen. It shows that we're growing, it shows that we're going in the right direction, and that Naples Ultra has a long and vibrant future ahead of it. And if you want to continue to support the podcast, please visit www.npupodcast.com and click on the Support Us page. There, we have a variety of ways you can support the podcast. You can support us by donating via Patreon. You can support us by writing reviews. You can support us by spreading the word of mouth. All of those help the podcast tremendously. Unfortunately, I do have some bad news for the podcast, but great news for myself personally. That is, I have officially been hired into a new career, and that orientation for it starts next week. I don't want to reveal the nature of this career, as it's a little bit more sensitive than some jobs that I've been used to having. All that I will say is that it fulfills one of my personal ambitions in life, which is to work within the justice system. So on that front, I'm extremely excited. I think I'm going to learn a lot, and it will broaden my horizons on the human condition as well as the status of our justice system in general. So I'm personally very excited. What this means for the podcast, though, is a little different. I'm not sure what next week's episode is going to look like, or if given this orientation that I'll be able to get it out at all. I'll know a lot more once I actually start going through orientation, and I'll be updating everybody around the middle of the week. I'm also unsure as to how this will affect production of the podcast. What I can promise you is that this podcast is going nowhere 
we are going to continue to be producing Naples Ultra episodes. However, it is likely that we will have to drop the rate of production from three per month to two per month. So make the podcast a bi-weekly affair. Believe me, I knew something like this was happening, and I've planned well in advance for how this will change aspects of my life. Again, I'll let everybody know a whole lot more once I've gone through orientation, and then update you with any new information. And with that, we are at the end of the 11th episode of Naples Ultra. I sincerely hope you all enjoyed it. And here's the question for this week's episode. That is, at what point do you feel like bias interferes with objectivity? So, at what point does your bias become an issue in you interpreting reality around you? Thanks for listening, everyone. We didn't have a question last episode due to the special nature of it. So whether or not there will be a podcast next week, I'm not sure. But what I do know is for sure, I will be seeing you in some recorded form next week. And until then, you guys take care. <laughs>